0: Everyone talks about Yeti. Well, it, it feels like y'all came out of nowhere. It, it really, you know, we've been in the cooler business for a long time. We've been in the, you know, developing products for a long time and team building for a long time. So it was just a natural evolution that, that things just kind of clipped by and we were making, fortunately, we were making a lot of quick decisions and a lot of those were the right decisions. And when we didn't make the right decision, we were able to pivot and course correct. But I, I look at Yeti and, Getting to Yeti, and I think kind of back to our early childhood, it was just these, it was these stepping stones along the way, you know, being in Driftwood and Dripping Springs was a stepping stone, being exposed to the outdoors, Onion Creek, hunting and fishing, you know, our, our community experience, our college experience, and then, you know, the way just being a part of our dad's small business, all these were little stepping stones, and then into the cooler business. And then eventually all those little stepping stones that happened along the way, all of them created an opportunity and opened up the aperture of of the opportunity as well.
1: Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore. We have got a packed house this morning, and I just got to say, I am super freaking pumped about this one. Some of my lifelong friends joining us. It really, I I just introduces the band of brothers, while one, biologically, a uh, bloodline is my brother, Philip Moore. Roy, Ryan, and Rick Cedars are certainly as close to being my brothers as they can. Little round of intros and then we'll get started. Philip is my younger and much better looking brother. Pioneer in the uh, renewable energy space. Started out his career up in D.C. learning the legislative side of things. Moved over to Res Americas, then on to Lincoln Clean Energy and now runs all U.S. onshore development for Orsted. Roy and Ryan Cedars, founders of Yeti Coolers. If you don't own one, you're an idiot. Everybody does. With an $8.5 billion market cap and a 52-week high of $105, I'd certainly say the Yeti stock has crushed it. And then you got Rick Cedars, who, in my opinion of things, lives his best life. He will talk a lot about private equity and its role at AG and and the eventual buyout of of architectural granite and marble and then everything he's been up to since, which is really just a uh like reading an autobiography of the most interesting man in the world. If you want to plan something or you need a contact somewhere, the only number you need to call is Rick Cedar. So with that intro, boys, welcome to the climb and thank you for being here. Thanks for Thanks having, for having us. So be here. before we dive into all of these illustrious careers, because it is interesting, there's there's a private equity role in almost everyone. There's a realization that, you know, maybe uh, help or a board or or someone else needed to be interjected into the mix to take that opportunity to the next level. But before we get into any of that, I really like to peel back the onion and, and go back to the roots of all of us, which is Driftwood in Dripping Springs, Texas. And Philip and I moved there with our mother and father in 1983. And, and Roy, I'll get you to jump in on this one. But I think the first memory of, of Cedars-Moore interaction was soccer games.
0: Yeah. I- I, and I, I think it might have been um, – now I remember our dad, Roger, he uh, coached all the uh, soccer games. So I don't know – it seems like you and I, Michael, were probably on that same team. And that was our first introduction to the Moore brothers. And I, I think we showed up to Driftwood from Houston. My parents grew up in Austin. Our parents grew up in Austin and moved to Houston. then we showed up in Driftwood.
2: That – about the well, short is school in 84 but we might have showed up a little
0: before Yeah, that. So about the same time we all showed up as well but it took us a few years to connect i think soccer is where we got our start
1: uh, i think that's right and it, it couldn't have taken long for us to run across each other somewhere cuz if it, i think i remember this correctly and philip you're you're the best with numbers in our family but didn't the population sign when we moved to dripping springs say 688
3: 688
1: yeah, with with one stoplight. So, so even going back further than that, because I think the, the cedars and the more family tree and history is just outstanding. Rick and Ryan and Roy, maybe talk a little bit about the cedars family history in and around Austin and, and how it all began. And then on down the line to your, your grandfather and the grocery store and then, and then your dad. Ryan, maybe we'll respect our elders and and start with you.
2: Well, Rick may know know more about the history in Austin, but, you know, the the Cedars came over from Louisiana. They came came in from Germany to Maine, then down to Louisiana, then over to Austin in, I believe, 1836. And there was an ebb and flow spring over there off 35th Street on Shoal Creek and had a bathhouse there and we actually had a granddad there you know i don't know it's like five breaks or so fourth, fourth i think it's our was our fourth great grandfather
4: was uh gideon white yeah. who actually owned that ranch really right up there off 38th street was a headqu- headquarters where cedar springs is now and yeah, that was about 1836 i think that he acquired that property and when he actually was scalped by, by Indians back in the day, Edward Cedars married one of his daughters. And the springs are named after, you know, Edward, who is our, probably our third great-grandfather. So we technically, I think, are seventh generation Austinite. And our, our kids will be eighth, I believe wow. that. Right.
3: Back when it was called Waterloo.
4: Yeah. yeah, it was Waterloo even
2: before, or Austin. For, for one year, it was Waterloo, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a lot of our family members were involved in, and our granddad you know, ran all the cash carries in Austin. Yeah. And that was the, you know, back then there was no H-E-B, and that was the dominant grocery store back in Austin. And so I heard a lot of stories about the grocery business and our dad and uncles and stuff growing up working. In the in the grocery business,
1: and, and so seeing that and hearing that, I mean, what what kind of impact or influence did did Daddy Gene's work ethic passing down to to Roger and then on to you guys have on you guys? Roy, let's start with you.
0: I remember our granddad, Daddy Gene, being in the grocery business, but barely. And so most of my stories come from my dad and just. To you know, he, he ran um, several different stores, and just I think was a real workhorse. And his his passion out, outside of the um, the grocery business was quail hunting. So my dad has a thousand stories about. We we did Ryan, Rick, and I. We did a little quail hunting with our granddad back in the early years, and his late years, our early years, so we got to experience you know, working behind his bird dogs and, and going down to South Texas. but
3: Where did Joe Hunt found that?
2: Oh, all over. Ryan, do you remember some of that? Well, you know, he had so many connections through the grocery business from people right. they were buying through. I mean, it started, I have pictures of the limited quail when I was one year, one year old yeah. uh, in, in McDade, which is, you know, less than 30 minutes east of Austin here. And there was little farmers wow. that he would buy from. And so they had unlimited free quail hunting. Now he was a hard worker, and I would say more of a weekend warrior on the quail hunting because you know he because he was working so hard in the grocery business. And you know I just remember the stories my dad told about about his dad. You know uh, his work ethic, and you know coming home every day to to work with the bird dogs and give them fresh water. And and if if my dad ever asked him to bring home anything from the store. He never forgot, brought it home every time. So those are some of the stories I heard. And I felt like, you know, my dad spent a lot of time working in the grocery business, the sack and groceries, you know, and I don't think he loved that. And so I think when, when he started, you know, when, when he eventually, you know, you know, had children, I think he did not want us to spend time working when we were younger. And which is kind of a pretty different from what you see a lot, you know, these days, he wanted us to, you know, he just didn't see that he got much value out of this. You know, and he, he spent his
0: weekends working in the grocery business. That's how yeah. it was up. Yeah. his weekends and his summers were working, you know, all day, every day in the grocery business. So I, I think he saw the value of just being a kid and not, not, not worrying about work. You have the rest of your life to work. I felt like when
3: that. we got a little bit older, Roger didn't mind putting us to work uh, unloading DPS <laughs> yeah. trucks with all the flex code. Uh, yeah, he did quite a few of those, but I love being over there. Yeah. yeah.
1: So Philip, because I think it's interesting to examine just the longevity of of the Cedars bloodline and the Moore bloodline in the great state of Texas, like like Rick did. Give us a little background on us being eighth generation Texans and, and how that started.
3: Yeah. Uh, fairly similar kind of timeline, uh, in terms of our earliest family coming over to Texas, not, not to Austin, but to Fort Bend County, which is, uh, right outside of uh, Houston. And we actually had kind of three, you know, bloodlines come in around that, you know, same time, 1820s, 1830s. And, they were granted uh, some of the original leagues of land as part of the old 300 colony, Stephen F. Austin's colony. He actually picked up for his his dad and kind of carried out that, you know, that land kind of granting process from the Mexican government. So yeah, starting in 1820s, 1830s, some of our ancestors settled in the Fort Bend County area. And yeah, some of the land that we still have is the Nancy Spencer League. It was our I guess our fourth great kind of grandmother, and then her husband Thomas Barnett was uh, one of the signers of the Texas uh, Declaration of Independence. So, yeah, right. similar kind of time timeline eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. We had some other family come over from uh, Germ- you know from Germany in the eighteen forties, uh, early eighteen fifties, and settled around Fredericksburg, and, and then later San Antonio. So yeah, no, I guess I think that puts us as eighth generation uh, Texans. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Michael. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, I
0: will say showing yeah. up in Texas in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, anytime around that time would have been a, about like showing up to Afghanistan, right? <laughs> right now.
2: It, I know. It was, it was a wild west.
0: west it'd be, it'd be the, you'd be the most exposed people on earth at that point because of what was going on. And, and, and really it was the, you know, the Comanche Indians, just their last holdout. And there was a lot of conflict and there was a, you know, to, to Rick's point earlier, our granddad was killed and scalped by Indians. So it was right. a rough
3: country.
1: No, I agree with that. And, and Roy, that's a perfect segue into what I want to spend some time talking to you guys about is I'm just, I'm a huge believer at this state in in my life and, and career and raising kids that you're so impacted. I mean, if we're talking about crossroads and defining moments and, and y'all's climb by the environment that you grow up in. And so we all got to experience something in Dripping Springs, Texas, that Kids today have a hard time even understanding. I mean, we just had free roam of the land. We got to play outside all day. We damn sure didn't know what an iPad was, and it was just. I just would like each of you to spend a little time just reflecting on what Dripping Springs was like from when we first all met through graduating and going off to our various colleges. And and Rick, I'll start with you.
4: Well, I I think Dripping Springs was you know, obviously a unique place, you know, outside, situated outside of Austin, just far enough to be outside of the, the big city. And, you know, Driftwood and Dripping Springs, like you said, I mean, it was pretty much, I don't even think we had locks on the doors out there. And, you know, closest neighbors that I knew anyway were, were you know, miles away, including you guys. And we just, we were lucky enough to have uh, a lot of land that we had access to close to home that we could go roam. And we had, you know, a mile of, two miles of onion Creek running through a ranch uh, across the street that we had full access to. And, you know, it was just, you know, like uh, the outdoors for us was, was our, our playground, you know? And, and so we, you know, we, it was pretty unique to get to grow up out there, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but close enough to you know, you know, a metropolitan city or at least a big town back in the day when we were growing up. So you kind of got a little bit of both cultures, and and I I I don't you know Roy and I've talked about it, Ryan I've talked about it. I don't know of anything to compare it to today. I think it's pretty unique, and and you know now Austin, you know, there's not really a break in between Austin and Dripping Springs or Driftwood, it's, it's you know, neighborhoods development and development, and it's all kind of, that sprawl has kind of merged. Whereas, you know, we had plenty of farm country in between here and Driftwood or Dripping Springs back when we were growing up. There was a definitely definitely a void between uh, the, 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 the
0: towns. And And I would also add, at the time, obviously we didn't realize what we had and, and not tell much later. Did you kind of reflect and realize like how, actually, how special it actually was. And you, I, I mean, I, I, well, at least when I was a kid, I thought every kid had access to onion Creek and, you know, spend a <laughs> exactly. And I thought every kid had access to land, you know, across the street from their house. And, and, and I think what made it special was, what 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 rick was describing not only it's it's a small ranching community full of great people but also you had access to austin which had the university of texas and and a larger city setting and hindsight you know it it was a pretty magical place to grow up but you just didn't quite get it at the time that we we were what i felt like we were outliers to you know to what is normal
3: well, so i think our amazing thing
2: I, to talk about is that we all started school there kindergarten through uh senior and high school was all in the same little building same building yeah and and with class sizes
0: where you know we all graduated with around 100 kids in our class and that what that meant was none of us are real athletes but you know we we were expected to play all the sports because that's what, that's what you were doing. That's, you needed it to, to build the team. So from middle school on, you were playing all the sports and you were engaged and active. And it was great to be a part of the team. And it wasn't what I'm seeing today, which is focus on one sport, and super competitive. Back then, you just showed up and played.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I remember, I can't remember which one was which, but back then when we were growing up, there was no area code you had to dial or even the first part of the number. I think to dial you guys was 7736 and we were 7742 or the combo of the two, but like, that's all you had to do to call your friend was pick up the phone and dial four numbers. You mentioned school. So, until high school, y'all remember though, Philip and I went to that hippie Waldorf school down the street that our dad helped found. Give us some, some insight. like the first time y'all started coming over to the farm and seeing that whole scene over there of an organic farm and a bunch of hippies running around like did you, do you remember your parents ever saying anything about it or like what was the first impressions of kind of getting a glimpse of Onion Creek Farm?
0: Now, I remember going over there for the first time. And again, I didn't recognize what I was looking at there, but hindsight, your parents were way ahead of their
3: time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Almost too far ahead of their time.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, really into organic, you know, of, uh, free range chickens, everything they're growing is organic. So, you no, know, like they were 20 years ahead of their time. So, you know, I, it, it was in in the, this farm setting was on onion Creek. And I just, I remember again, spending a thousand hours over there, running all over that farm and on onion Creek, catching catfish, catching bass and chasing grasshoppers and playing football in the front yard and baby guns and all that. It was, again, it was, it was top notch.
3: See, I think our, I think our parents knew exactly what we had, you know, like they, like, I remember my mom, I mean, she would pinch herself, you know, at, When we'd all be sitting down, you know, outside at at the farm, like having dinner or something like that, you know, like it was it was the happiest place she ever had, you know, or she was ever a part of. So I think they I think they knew how special that was. And it was just, you know, it was kind of some luck and circumstance that, you know, we all were able to grow up in a town like that because you can't really find that anymore. Like it wasn't it was right on the edge of, you know, of Austin and, and what that brings yet it was still pretty rural at the time out there, but there wasn't like that conflict, you know, like people were like a lot of the people that we all hung out with had very different backgrounds, but that wasn't in conflict with each other. Like people just, it was just a time that you can't really get back anymore because just the development has happened and everything has just happened so much more rapidly. Now back then, I think people were really able to just have that space and enjoy it. And I think our parents is, and I don't know about Roger and Pat, but I think our parents just, felt like they wanted us to grow up with something like that, but then they were surprised at how amazing it was, you know, and just how that timing was perfect. I and mean, growing up on the farm out there, I mean, then we moved from that farm when we were, you know, I was probably what, 13, Michael, you were 15 or 12 and 14, something like that.
1: Yeah. I think but we that, moved right before I started high school. Yeah. yeah to the Hurlbutts' place down Rancho 12. Phillip, yeah. that's
4: a, that, I think it's a good point that, you know, I think one thing that was really unique about Driftwood and Dripping Springs back then is that we had just such a diverse group of friends and community. You had these like, you know, old ranching families that, you know, had been out there for a long time and, you know, really, you know, worked, you know, pretty sizable chunks of land for the hill country. And, and, A lot of these kids had grown up out there and not, you know, hardly ever been off the ranch. I remember going to some friend's house where you had to have four-wheel drive just to get to their house. We had friends whose parents were, you know, really moving out there to get away from the city and off the grid and away from any type of government structure so they could grow their weed or whatever. So you had this (laughs) hippie community, you know, you had a hippie community, you had this old, you know, kind of redneck ranching community. You know, you had these people that couldn't afford to live in town, so they were in trailer parks. And then you had, you know, you know people like your parents and people like my parents that just, you know, wanted to to be, you know, just close enough to uh, a big city, but be out, you know, where their kids could roam free. And and I just think it was a really interesting, diverse community that would also be hard to to find today. You know, a, a good example of. It. You know, you'd have to go pretty far outside of, of Austin into the hill country to find it. I think.
1: Yeah, I don't know that it it truly exists in its natural state, like it is. Like we can recreate it because we're all fortunate enough to have a ranch to take our kids down to and kind of show them and talk to them about the history. But just the the pure ability to grow up and walk outside and throw a line and and catch a bass or, or go pick fresh raspberries or whatever. I just, I don't really think exists anymore. I do want to get some more reflection on this. You know, Roy, you were nice enough to, to buy me a, uh, an adult beverage at your, one of your favorite spots up in Telluride. And I had just gotten back from a hike, a very reflective hike actually spreading the, the last of my mother's ashes that, that. I had. And, you know, in, in, kind of telling you about that, you teared up and, and certainly, you know, when, when Rick got the news that we had lost Hilmer to ALS and and we got on the phone, he, he couldn't even talk. Would you guys, and then we'll reverse this too, and, and talk about y'all's parents' influence on us, but would you mind sharing a little bit of just the impact that, that Hilmer and Claire had on y'all's lives? And Ryan, feel free to chime in too. You
0: know, I, I, I'll start there. I I just have such wonderful memories of, and, and our parents are the same age, and wonderful memories of just spending, you know, countless days at Jaws' house and with Helmer and Claire, and and yep. then and then hunting trips with with Helmer down to Cedar Creek and Sandy Creek and. And it was, it was your parents. There were a, you know, second parents to us. I remember sitting there with you talking about spreading your mom's ashes and, and you no, know, I, I, unfortunately, you know, you know, both y'all's parents have passed away way too early. It feels way too early. And, and Ryan, Rick, Ryan and I are fortunate enough to still have our parents, which are the exact same age as y'all's parents. And, and just all these wonderful memories of, it's just, You know, life is tough, and and getting old is tough, and and it's 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 very emotional to think about all those great memories and and things coming to an end, right? Things coming and and those those great memories, that's what they are, their memories. And it's at at one point when we were kids, you feel like you felt like this magic of of friends and family and trips just will always be there, but it's not, and so. You know, I miss uh, I miss your parents, and and I just have a lot of great memories of them.
3: Thank you.
4: Yeah, I'll chime in. I guess I, I'll start with with Hilmer. You know, I think it was one thing that that aside from being able to you know roam around driftwood and and the Roberts Ranch across the street and Onion Creek, and you know, go visit you guys at the farm. A uh, lot of our fond memories uh, are going down to your family ranches, Cedar and Sandy Creek, and you know we started going early enough in y'all's lives. We were all together with my, even with my grandfather and 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 Helmer and my dad and Ryan and Roy and Philip and you know I feel like that we got to discover a lot of your family land together. We we were all standing side by side and and able to explore those all that land you know, together and with our, our dads and with my grandfather. And I just remember, you know, Hilmer, you know, being as curious like a kid as we were about everything. And he was always such a great educator. You know, he had obviously grown up on y'all's family ranches and, and knew a lot about it. But I feel like that one thing that Hilmer would always do is, is get out and explore with us. And yeah. it was like he was seeing things for the first time as well. And, you know, what I've, one thing I've always said about Hilmer is that I think he was one of the best educators that, that I've ever seen or known in my life throughout any of my schooling. But because he always had a way of basically teaching you things by asking you questions and letting you find your own answers. Like uh, he was just a curious teacher. He would ask you questions and then all of a sudden, you know, you would find the answer yourself, but he led you there the whole way. And I feel like it was like early on when it came to being in the outdoors and out on the ranch and kind of hunting and, and exploring those ranches, you know, he was just, you know, I remember his influence on us. And and it was just, you know, a time of really cool discovery, you know, new new lands and roaming free outdoors on your
1: places. Ryan, do you have any memories or you you were, you were pretty smart because you spent 99% of your time actually in a deer stand, which is why you always shot bigger deer than the rest of us. But, (laughs)
2: Uh, you know, I spent a lot more time with Hilmer over the years because I was a little bit older than y'all. And and most of my time was spent down at the ranches with y'all, but I always enjoyed spending time with Hilmer, you know, at that time he wasn't as bloodthirsty as everybody else was down there you know? <laughs> and and it was not but he enjoyed it just as much as we do i remember him drinking coffee and and looking out appreciating the outdoors and going out there and doing stuff with us and listening to him tell stories you know it was nice to have you know someone else out there that wasn't you know that, that didn't have to go out hunting but still enjoyed being out there with us you know and His
0: storytelling ability was the, uh, probably the, I mean, he, he had the most fantastic stories, fantastic stories. And I remember on the drive down, we'd get these stories on there at the ranch around the campfire around the kitchen table. It's just, these stories were unbelievable. So he's a first class storyteller. I feel like now we have,
3: we have so much like clutter in our lives. You know, you kind of forget that, you know good storytelling is really where it's at you know and he he was really good at that both uh, both roger and and our dad were you know were were great at that but like you realize like if you are sitting around a campfire you know with your friends whatever's cluttering your mind right now is not interesting to everybody else but some great story you know that ties something together like that that's always going to be interesting you know And, and For whatever reason, they're both really good at just keeping that part of their brains, you know, just empty enough to where they, you know, just kept it, you know, they kept the stories there. And they're always just like on demand. Like they had a story or had something for, you know, every situation you're in.
1: Philip, just flipping it around to to Pat and Roger, any any reflections on just their influence on you spending as much time as we did over at their house?
3: Man, I would I would stay over there for so long during the summer that Roger would have to tell me to go home. You know, he's like, <laughs> "Hey, you know, do you have a home? Where, where, like, where do you do No, I mean, I, you know, I loved, or I loved them so much. You know, Pat was just a, you know, she was a force, and uh, in, in the, the Dripping Springs community, you know, and uh, she was always just kind of, you know, she was always in the background, just kind of orchestrating everything. But I just love being over there. Obviously, Roger, you know, it just it was hard not to be completely consumed by him whenever he was around, you know, just just the way he would engage people. I I hadn't seen, I think we'd just moved back from DC and I think our, our son Brooks was just, you know, a couple years old. And I hadn't seen Roger in years. And I brought brought Brooks over and we pulled up at Roy's house and Roger's out in the front yard. He had like a Shimano reel, you know, and he was just doing something, He's, you know, winding up you know, fishing line on it. But Brooks just walked right over to him and just eyes is this big, you know, and Roger got right in his face, you know, just like talking about the reel and all the little components in there that he had just fixed and got working right. And, you know, Brooks didn't even know what a reel was, you know, but he was just so completely engaged it was like well you know there you go rogers rogers got another one there just completely completely enthralled you know so that's always the way it was being over there i mean roger was just so full of energy pat was so full of energy like they just constantly just constantly entertaining you know i loved it
1: no to to add to that you know we always knew where we stood with with our mother and and she could kind of drop the iron fist every once in a while if we were getting too out of line. But I just always felt like, like Pat was that extra set of eyes where if I was getting too far out of my lanes and starting to fuck up a little bit, you know, Pat, Pat was going to bring me back around and make sure I, I was, I was front and center. She just, she had a, she was, she was another mother. I mean, she just had that ability to give you that look like, you know, Michael, That's great and all, but you know, you and Rick have been out till three o'clock in the morning four nights in a row, and you need to kind of tone it down a little bit. And then, similar to Philip's description of of Roger, you know, Rick made a great point that you know our parents were kind of twenty years ahead of their time, and I think in a lot of ways Roger was too. And just his ability to think about business and create a product from nothing and get it out to the market, like our dad didn't really have those kind of, of skills. And, and so to get to come over and, you know, put flex code on a lure or make my own rod or see what Roger was into next was just, it was like, I was getting the yin and the yang of, of both styles of, of parenting and and interests, you know, God, he could just get you fired up about anything, whether it was a new specialized mountain bike or a tag watch or anything else that 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 he all thought we needed one of once he started talking about it he might as well just went and bought the damn thing because he wasn't going to stop until everybody had one so just an incredible opportunity to really be raised by two sets of parents and certainly Philip and I are incredibly appreciative of of that experience
0: you know i'll also say to to our parents you know one thing that that I've thought about a lot over the last, you know, as we all have become you know, fathers ourselves, right? We all have kids. And I just felt like being a dad like our dads and, and being a, a being parents like our parents, I felt like it was going to come pretty naturally. But looking back at it now, it's amazing how much our parents made us the top priority, right? They, they they put everything else aside, their own interest, and they made sure we were taken care of. That we yep. and Basically, they were great parents and, and we were top priorities to our parents. And they would drop anything to do things for us, run us to soccer, you know, be with us after school, during the weekend, travel with us, go on these hunting trips with us. It was all about us, right? And, and so you know it, it, it doesn't come as natural like in our adult life you know I you know Rick and I will go take off on a pronghorn hunt and you know I don't think my our, our dad you know he, if he was going hunting or fishing or anything he was he was tongue along all the kids and it was for us like could you imagine that taking? You know, a dozen kids down to Grand Isle, Louisiana to go fishing that's what it was about
1: no he had that he had that van with the six by nine speakers in the back blasting prints the whole way to Grand Isle. <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. True. that's
4: that's one thing that's unique is that i don't I don't ever remember our dad you know doing any of his own trips or it, for that matter Helmer doing it we were always in town
3: all
1: the, yeah.
4: All yeah. the guys do
3: very true.
1: So transitioning now into the professional lives of, of these brothers on the phone, Philip, I'm going to start with you and, and Cedars boys, feel free to pepper away with, with questions. But w- what I want the theme of, of these next conversations to be is, is our ability. And again, I think it goes back to the way we grew up to see two or three steps ahead and what's coming next and what do I need to adjust to figure that out? And so I gave a little background, Philip, on your career. but I just think it's so interesting. I, I don't know that many people right out of school that just went all in on renewables. and you know, to I just want to say thank you because it's benefited our family greatly. You've with your company and then also just consulting on our behalf, we now you know have taken land that's been in our family for centuries, and it's not really producing anymore oil and gas per se, or at least not any new production. And and now we've got solar panel farms. So just talk about your world as you've seen private equity play a role in it and really where renewables are today and and where they're headed.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know that I was a couple of steps ahead by any means, kind of stumbled in the renewables business, but, you know, everything Anything that's successful takes, I guess, good luck, but and timing. But you know, really, I when I finished University of Texas in in 2001, the you know Austin economy was in the tanks. You know, the tech bubble burst, and uh, all the jobs that I had been interviewing for that summer just evaporated. So I didn't know really what I was going to do. And the one thing about uh, recessions is that politics is always still going on. And so uh, I happened to start working for the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission and spent the year, you know, traveling around with him across the state and learning a bit about oil and gas and really about energy and politics uh, more than anything else. And from there, spent some time in the legislature and then went up to to D.C. Uh, for grad school and, and started working at the Department of Energy. And it just happened that when I was working at the DOE, there were some specific wind energy-related issues about trying to get uh, permits for all the wind turbines and how they might impact airports. And so I started working on that issue. And there was a wind company that was based in Austin, and I was looking to get back after wrapping up grad school and and come back to Austin. And they needed somebody to help them on you know developing wind farms and you know and, and a policy and kind of regulatory kind of work. And so really i don't know that i was looking a few steps ahead it was just that it sounded you know just sounded like a neat opportunity and i, I think going back to you know our our the way we were raised and how we we're uh, how we grew up i think we were we we're always open to opportunities right we didn't feel like we just had to go do one specific thing or pick one line of work and and just do that our parents gave us that freedom just to kind of take things as they come see an opportunity and then you know, have that kind of confidence to go and, and really pursue that. And so for me, you know, it was kind of by, you know, circumstance and somewhat chance that I was exposed to the renewables business. And then when I saw that there was a real career there, I just kind of ran with it and, and you know, I've been doing that for the past 15 years.
1: So D, d- myth for all of us, what occurred earlier this year with Ice Icemageddon hitting Texas and you know certainly the the media's perception and and certain politicians and I liked your comment that you know even if the economy's in the tank politics is still happening I think that's one of the reasons they call it the second oldest profession but yeah, I mean myth for all of us that don't really understand the grid and ERCOT and renewables play in that that what really happened when our grid got so compromised.
3: Yeah, I mean, and the storm in February was really just one of those uh, worst-case scenarios. I mean, it was a combination of everything going wrong at the at the same time. But leading up to that event, you know, the, the the weather pattern that moved over Texas was making its way down from the Arctic, and so you could see as gas natural gas prices were rising, you know, starting from. You know, Minnesota working all the way down into Oklahoma and Texas, you know, the week before it hit us, gas prices were off the charts, you know, hundreds of times above the, the normal price, spot price. And so it was already setting up to be a really difficult event because natural gas is kind of the marginal unit. It sets the, the, the price of electricity. So what ended up happening really in, in Texas is that there was a, a real struggle to actually get gas into the system. And then and then there was a concern that power plants wouldn't, you know, a be able to get the fuel. And if they could, they, you know, the, the market price would need to be held, you know, really high because they're paying a very high price for that gas. And so the they decided to hold prices artificially very high for you know most of that, you know, five day period when the storm hit. And so that then had a big impact on you know, retail providers of power because they're having to go out into the spot market and buy at extremely high prices. But they wanted to keep the prices high so that generators could at least, you know, uh, generate, you know, and, and break even. So it's just one of these things where the, the market forces and, and the dynamics of moving gas into the system and, and being able to keep generation online were really challenged. And, and where the renewables comes in, I mean, nobody performed uh, great uh, during that week renewables overall in terms of what was forecasted to produce you know we were you know we were maybe in some and some days you know 10 to 15% uh, percent, uh, down but you know we didn't you know in terms of the overall kind of energy mix in Texas you know of, of all the generation that was knocked off line or that wasn't available you know about 90% of it was was gas and and coal and and nuclear so again everybody had their share in it but it was just just one of those situations where everything that could have gone wrong pretty much went wrong leading up uh, uh, to that week and so you know it was pretty destructive for for you know a lot of industries and a lot of people and a lot of, a lot of businesses so they're you know going through a process now to try to you know to figure out how to avoid that but yeah, politics played a you know big part in it. Saying it was a renewable issue, it really really wasn't. It was a kind of all of the above kind of issue. You know, renewables played their part in it, but but you know, so did
1: everything else. So you know, I, I heard a, a it's just a mathematical play, but it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. You know, nineteen thirty nine is as close to nineteen eighty as twenty twenty one is, which is just weird to think about for a second and. Yeah so you think about the compounding effect of you know inventions and 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 people and companies coming into play to launch the next thing where where does what does renewables look like 10 15 20 years from now
3: yeah it's a good question i mean we're, we'll obviously have a lot more renewables on the system than we do now but like everything thinking about, you know, how Austin's changed over the years. You know, they're, they're, they've been working on that big overpass at, you know, Ben White and, and I-35 for 50 years, you know, and, and they're still working on it. And they planned for that back in the 50s and 60s, and they're still, you know, trying to improve that, that area. The way that our electric grid was set up and, and how transmission was planned and generation was planned, was typically or in most cases was done you know 30 40 50 years ago and so that's the system that we're operating under now but yet renewables have grown you know tremendously so i feel like we're just hitting that kind of end of the first phase of this transition and people talk a lot about you know the energy transition and moving towards more renewables or you know decarbonizing to to some extent um we're just kind of ending the first phase of that and about to really, you know, enter the second phase. And, but that's not just building more renewables, you know, it's about, you know, thinking about how we need to plan the grid differently for people having electric cars, you know, and and if everybody comes home and plugs their Tesla in at the same time, you know, the systems is going to shut down. So you have to you, you do have to take a step back and think about how things need to be redesigned. Just the way the, those overpasses, you know, they take 50 years to design and build, and by the time you build them, you know the the, the growth has already you know exceeded that what was planned. We're kind of at the same point, I think, with the renewables, where we need to be thinking about what the grid you know needs to look like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, and and start planning uh, for that.
1: So Rick we're going to dive into to your career which is certainly an interesting one and and maybe not is is textbook as some of some of the rest of us here but you know Philip made a good point that I think is worth reflecting on that our parents gave us that freedom to really be independent and think and not just feel like I've got to go down this path because that's what my father did or that's what I'm supposed to do and I think I think your your career and approach to life, and and certainly raising your kids and your relationship with Emily just defines that I'm not just going to jump to the next thing because that's what I'm supposed to do. So, talk about your your ride at AGM. I, I really do think you were kind of the first person, at least I knew that was, you know, that that got thrown into that the power of private equity and what it can do. To a company when they decide that, you know, they want to take some of your chips off the table or all of it. And then that the lessons you learned in private equity and the connections that you made certainly were impetus and beginnings of conversations that that Roy and Ryan had at Yeti. And so I think it'll be a good transition from there.
4: Yeah, so I often get asked with my dad in the fishing tackle business and Roy and Ryan in the cooler business how I didn't end up in some sort of sporting good good business. And I've got a kind of a funny explanation for that. So um, when I, prior to, out in Driftwood, prior to getting my driver's license, you know, I rode motorcycles. So it was, and I was always full throttle wherever I went. And as soon as I got a driver's license, I took that same attitude to my stick shift F-150, the old red on white. And I think within about the (laughs) first year of getting my driver's license, I got probably three speeding tickets. Well, so to work off my speeding tickets, I used to have to work at, at my dad's company, Flexcoat. And we were doing a lot of piecemeal, like, you know, bagging you know, brushes, epoxy brushes and stuff like that. It was torturous. So I think he was paying me four fifty five dollars an hour. And my cousin, Chad's dad, had started this granite company and he offered me six dollars an hour to come over and and, you know, run a forklift with my cousin. They lived on Lake Austin, so I took the pay raise and we would you know, we would clock out every day at about two o'clock in the summertime and and go hit the lake. So it was an upgrade. <laughs> so I I, I associated uh, you know working for Flexco as punishment uh, for paying off speeding tickets. So Chad's dad had a you know small granite company, and I started working for them in the summers uh, towards the end of high school, and then came back and and did it in college too and then after i graduated from tech i was actually in 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 chile for a, almost a year and i was working down there for an accounting firm you know really you know kind of a glorified internship and 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 you know when i moved back to the us at the end of 99 jack and chad kind of you know started to grow this granite business into kind of the next phase it was a real small company at the time but they were talking about expanding uh, a second location to San Antonio and then potentially a third to Nashville and importing and distributing these slabs for countertops mostly. So Jack and Chad talked me into joining the, the granite business and I went and helped get San Antonio started and then moved to Nashville to open the branch there And at the time, you know, 2000, I was thinking I'm going to go do this for a little while, and then find out, figure out my tech play or 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 something. And then, you know, 18 years later, you know, I was I was still there and and had you know been a part of quite a ride of of growing this business. It, It really we went from being a small, probably I don't know, 10 person company when I first started to you know having well, actually, Ryan and Roy, what year did y'all take on a private private equity partner? Two
2: thousand twelve.
4: Two thousand twelve. So Ryan and Roy actually took on a private equity partner first. Got it. And and we were kind of. I saw you know a lot of people. A lot of people say that you know. <laughs> I think for the most part, private equity can be a negative thing for some business businesses, but it can be positive for others. And I, I do think it helped Brian Roy, you know, take it to the next level. And we, we kind of at AGM, we've grown big enough. And my my dad's first cousin, Jack, you know, he was kind of ready to start winding things down. So my cousins, Chad and Luke and I had kind of a choice either to, you know, leverage up with some bank debt and buy him out or or, you know. Take some chips off the table, bring in a private equity partner and kind of swing for the fences with, with other people's money and and really take advantage of opportunity to, to grow our business to the next level. And after seeing Ryan and Roy kind of have a you know successful, you know, partnership with their private equity partner, we kind of felt comfortable to make that leap as well. And and it turned out turned out great for us. So we through some acquisitions and a merger, we actually went. Uh, public in June of 2018. And I left leading up to that, you know, IPL to, you know, basically at that time, I'd taken all pretty much all my chips off the table. And I didn't really have, you know, an interest in working for uh, a big corporate publicly traded company, kind of more of a smaller, you know, growth company type guy myself, or at least I would consider myself that way.
1: And so with all that perspective, and then, you know, certainly not the, the drain of the desk in the, and the nine to five or eight to 10 or whatever hours you were keeping, you've gotten to see a lot and invest a lot. What, what's next on the horizon for Rick Cedars?
4: Well, right now I'm having fun kind of, you know, you know, wearing a lot of different hats, you know, I've, I've kind of Found some some interesting little deals that I've been able to insert myself in for short periods of time, and you know I've just little investments, buying some real estate, doing a spec house, and then kind of working on some concepts for you know potential future businesses that I would actually you know work in day to day. But as I've, i I've been fortunate enough to to have the time and the means to take my time you know and figuring out what I'm gonna, what I'm going to be when I grow up you know for this next phase and I've been able to have a lot of fun along the way as well so you know well
1: i what i would add to that rick is that you you, you know success comes in all shapes and sizes sure you know economic success is is nice and and you've had that but you're, you're just your ability to connect with people and and certainly seeing you know how how much you guys prayed for expanding your family a second time and just what an amazing dad you are to charlotte is is just it, it's humbling and and going back to my original opening comments I mean there's just there's nobody else I know that if I need to figure out how to connect with something or find something there's one phone number that I dial and 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 you're going to get it figured out. So I, I certainly appreciate that.
4: Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a master of nothing, but know a little bit about everything <laughs> I mean, when it comes
1: down to it. just enough to be dangerous. So so transitioning now to to Roy and Ryan, and you know, I think the the Yeti story in and climb. Uh, certainly, on another podcast that that people should check out, the Hunting Collective. I think y'all did a great job of of telling the story on that one, and it's well documented in in publications and and things. But going back to the defining moments and crossroads that that this podcast highlights, Ryan, maybe we'll start with you and just give us some of the highlights along the way, and Roy, we'll we'll hear from you second.
2: Highlights of the Yeti story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, basically, I'm I'm gonna step back a little bit. When I got out of Texas AM, I built fishing rods for eight years. So, like a customer of my dad's through Flexcoat. And then Roy got out four years after me and started building boats. You know, neither both of us were having fun. We weren't making much money. It would have been hard to support a family. And in 2002, I found a cooler. It looked heavy duty called an icy tech and called Roy and Roy started putting these on his boats that he was building. Cause we were tearing up coolers left and right on our fishing excursions, you know, from standing on them, sitting on them. They were just, every, they were just disposable. And I, I saw these coolers in Florida and said, Hey Roy, you need to start putting these on your boats. So he did that. And he quickly realized that, that if he was looking for a heavy duty cooler, maybe other people were, And then he, you know, so he became involved in that, in that Icy Tech business. 2005, I sold my rod company and kind of got lucky there to sell it. And, you know, come, I went, that was in September of 95. Well, hold on just a second. Sorry, September of 2005. And I hunted for about four months. And then I could see Roy was a little bit stressed out with his workload. And I, I called him up and said, hey, I don't have anything to do. I'll come help you down in the warehouse for ten dollars an hour, and he said, "Come on down." And so, 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 that was January of two thousand six. And you know, I'll let Roy pick up the story from here. But that's when, you know, that's what led to starting Yeti. You know, early part of two thousand six.
0: No, so I distributed that original tech for three
2: or four
0: years learned a lot about the cooler business and the opportunity that existed and and about that time ryan sold his fishing rod company i started having this vision of starting my own cooler company i was just a distributor for this original cooler now i i had some ideas of i need to go find a manufacturer and do this for for myself with my own design ideas and our own brand so ryan and i ended up flying over to the philippines and sitting down with the manufacturer i'm in my maybe my late 20s here and ryan's his early 30s and for us growing up in central texas you know we're sticking our neck out by showing up in the philippines philippines like i'm i'm a homebody and and going over there it's it it felt like we were sticking our neck out and, and just getting to know this manufacturer but anyway that provided the that provided us the opportunity to start a cooler company from the ground up with again with their own designs and, and brand name so that was 2006 and you know I think for the longest time Ryan Ryan and I recognized we had an opportunity we were onto something again this this was a bootstrapped endeavor so we, you know we were buying just as enough inventory as we can afford and reselling it and, and taking that those earnings and pouring it back into the you know funding the next round of inventory. I think Ryan and I thought we had a business that was going to be a family business that could support us and our family. Very similar to our our dad's business. Whereas a lifestyle business, it'd be a s- small company, we'd go sell coolers to people like us that were out into the outdoors using using them on boats and hunting and fishing. And, and I think we started to see that it might be bigger than that, you know, in those early years, get to 2007, eight. And, and we recognized that this opportunity was not what my, my, my parents had with FlexCo. This is not a small mom and pop business. And I think when we recognized that we, we started surrounding ourselves with the you know, the smartest people we could find to bring into the business that we could afford at the time, right? And, and I, looking back on, on this whole journey and, and unfortunately, you know, this podcast, we have an hour and a half to fit in a lifetime of stories, right, right. Uh, among the five of us and whether business and it's just, there's a long story to all of us, right? And all of our stories. But I think looking back on everything, if you could point to one thing is the people in our lives. Right. And if you could point to the, the things that Ryan and I did well in the early days is finding the right people at the right time to bring into the company. And so you, you look at those early years, it was just us. Then, then we were making these, bringing in these people and it was both internal and external, both our, you know, our manufacturing partners to our, the folks that we were bringing into the company. Then, all of a sudden, we look up in two thousand eleven and we we have a tiger by the tail I mean it's, yeah. it's a everything we could do to keep up with the business and we're just we're a cooler business at the time. every dollar that we made out of the business went back straight back into it to fund to fund the the growth of the business so Ryan and I. We were outside the business. We were living off the land. You know, I was I, I was living in a house that my parents owned. You know, Ryan was living cheap in Austin. I was out there in Driftwood, and we were very scrappy. And we were we were just we were living off the land, scrappy. And we recognized that we didn't have any wealth to speak of outside the business, but we created a pretty amazing asset. And you know, we started looking at our options on what does it look like to take some chips off the table? And we went to, in, in 2012, we went to market and because of our earnings, because of our growth, and we kind of had our pick of the litter of a, a potential partner, both strategic partners to lots of different private equity groups. And we ended up partnering with the private equity group that, you know, was a great, was a great resource for us. And in the end, could help us navigate the next stage of growth. And again, one thing we did well was surround ourselves with the right people including this private equity group and you know as we sold a majority stake, we recognized that the the value creation off, off of our rollover into the new company with the partners could could be meaningful and and working shoulder to shoulder with the private equity group that could help us navigate the the next stage of growth with systems and people and processes and and Really, and their specialty was, was helping us build our team, you know, both at the management level, all the way down into the weeds on, and never in our wildest dreams, did we ever think that Yeti would do what it did. And, and it, it, you know, we saw the brand become bigger than the product and we saw the brand kind of give us permission to go to the next level and, you know. We, we took the brand and we, we had a, an expensive cooler and then we, you know, came out with other things like drinkware and soft coolers and bags and, and it, it continues to, you know, grow like crazy today.
1: No, I think that's, that's really interesting. I want to touch on a couple of points that I was reading up last night, the, that, that private equity partner, that was, was it CoreTech? Yeah. Cortec. Yeah. And, and y'all, you know, did some work together, either their idea, or yours, or combo of the two to take it from Yeti coolers to, to Yeti so that you could really branch out and all the different products that you're, that you're offering. And, and reading up on that last night, I think it, it mm-hmm. had some, it had some comment in there that, that said, you know, Ryan's just gone fishing, but, 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 you know, like I, What amazes me is that y'all had the insight, which most entrepreneurs and and people that have built something from the ground up and it's their, their sweat equity and and time and sacrifice to have the insight is, you know, as early as it happened to you guys to step back and say, you know, if this, if this brand, not this company is really going to become as big as it can, we need to surround ourselves with good people and, and get out of the, the day to day, and and let them run it. So, I mean, how? Tell me about some of those conversations that y'all had as you were realizing that was the best, maybe not the best thing for what you set out to do, but certainly what the company had become and taken it where it's gone today.
0: So it's back to my comment. We I think we recognize that the that the brand and the company was bigger than just uh, us, and it wasn't a family lifestyle business, right and and then at that point, it's it's finding the right people to bring into the business. And I think, you know, Ryan and I that we were, we were really good at, we were good at product and we were good at starting a business, right? And we were good at scrappy and living off the landing, finding the right people. But we also recognize that there's folks, including Quartec, that could we could bring into the company that could help us navigate. And then eventually hiring Matt, Matt Reitius, our CEO, to take over as, from my role and then, you know, take it into a public company setting. So everyone talks about Yeti. Well, it, it feels like y'all came out of nowhere. It, it really, you know, we've been in the cooler business for a long time. We've been in the, you know, developing products for a long time and team building for a long time. So it was just a natural evolution that that things just kind of clipped by and we were making fortunately we were making a lot of quick decisions and a lot of those were the right decisions. And when we didn't make the right decision, we were able to pivot and course correct. But I, I look at Yeti and getting to Yeti. And I think kind of back to our early childhood, it was just these, it was these stepping stones along the way, you know, being in driftwood and dripping Springs was a stepping stone being exposed to the outdoors, onion Creek, hunting and fishing, you know, our, our, community experience our college experience and then you know the way just being a part of our dad's small business all of these were little stepping stones and then into the cooler business and then eventually all those little stepping stones that happened along the way all of them created an opportunity and opened up the aperture of, of the opportunity as well
1: No I love that Ryan what 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 was a better experience ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange or like when the biggest buck you've ever seen walks out in front of your deer stand?
2: I would say that hunting. <laughs> 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 it, it, was, it was fun to to go up to New York and, and to see everything that, that came together and how how things almost fell apart as we were going public. That The day before the stock market dropped, crazy and there was like four companies scheduled to go public that day we may have been the only one that, that went through on the new york stock exchange i guess but but that was a great experience to see all that but it i you know it you know by that time i felt like the company had outgrown me and so some of these fishing and hunting experiences i value much more than i do what i got to see up there but I, i'm glad i got to see that you know and you know for us when we sold the Cortec. You know, we did bring in the right partner with Cortec. I felt like. But for Roy and I, I think the bigger driving force was to to diversify and take some chips off the table because we had nothing outside of Yeti to speak of at that time in 2012. And so that was the driving force. And then it happened to be that we got the right partner with Cortec Group. Uh, and and it was neat that that they were able to add that value and to help us continue our growth because we would have continued to grow with without cortec but we wouldn't have been able to build the team like we did they had a better they had experience at building out teams like that and we didn't know what we were missing because we had never been there before and so with roy's ability to come up with with products and actually bring them to market and with cortec helping Build out the team. It was just a great combination, and and took something that you know. Roy and I were both used to being in charge, and and from when we sell a majority share, knowing that that next day you come into work is the first time in your life that you haven't been in charge. You know, and Roy and I had never had a resume. We'd never done anything else but work for ourselves, and you know, work inside of our dad's company. And so to to come in that next day and and have someone else in charge, it was a it was a different feeling, but we've worked worked well as a team and and it was fun to see the continued growth of Yeti beyond you know, you know getting involved with the private equity company.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd I would say that 2012 uh, the value that was created there. That's what we were willing to give up. We are willing to give up the ability to make that last call. Now, I will say, core tech. Gave us the ability to continue to run our company. What they, what their specialty was, was build the muscle, build the muscle of the team and the systems, and surround us. continue to, you know, be, you know, looking for what's best for the company.
2: And in uh, that that 2012 time frame was my most, you know, cherished or, or fun part of being involved in Yeti. Just the craziness of it. It was much, it was much wilder to me than the than the, you know, going public in 2018,
1: you know. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that it, it was, was, was almost the the gravy at that point, right? That's right. That's yeah. Right.
3: Yeah, Roy, <clears throat> I remember you telling me around that time, I think we were, we were hunting, but you were like, you know, it, it's amazing how quickly this thing has grown. And I think your comment was, you know, we're still running this thing on QuickBooks, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> was, we, we, need, running, we need some help.
0: We you know a 100 million in sales on QuickBooks. That's exactly. unbelievable.
1: That's got to yeah. be a world record. Yeah.
0: And and the only way we were able to do that because we're, we're essentially at the time we were one product company, we were coolers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was just one little thing, one little thing that was not sustainable. And Hey, yeah. the, way, the way we were working in the business wasn't sustainable either. It was like, it was everything we could to keep up with the business. We were, we were doing this because we recognized it was a huge opportunity, but we were burning at both ends, which wasn't sustainable. We weren't being good family men. We weren't being, we weren't taking care of our health. We were, we were certainly not connected to the outdoors like we were in our childhood because we had this tiger by the tail. And, and I think part of our motivation was just to get back to a place where, and Yeti, it, Yeti's still in our life and it's still, it's still meaningful to me and we still have ownership in the company. However it's like number five or six on the priority list, right? Right. It's right now it's family, it's health, it's, it's friends, it's outdoors. It's then, then Yeti's down there below all those things. And where at one time it was everything you could do to keep up with Yeti. And then all those other things were kind of had to take a back, back seat to, to that.
1: Yeah, that's that's really good perspective Roy and, and Ryan thank you for sharing so is we're coming up and I know Ryan's got a hard stop here pretty quick there's a question that I like to ask at the end of these podcasts it's a really a reflective one and it, it there's the saying out there that it's not you know what you know it's who you know and I flip it around to say it's not who you know but who knows you and we think about this podcast and we've talked about the value of storytelling and its impact on our lives, being able to just pass down thoughts and experiences and feelings and history. And so in thinking through that question, and and Philip, I'll start with you. If we're capturing this story together, and we we talked a lot about our parents, what, what would you want mom and dad to know about you?
3: Good question. Man, you know, I think that I think at the end of the day, you know what's made me successful and you know kind of put me on the path that I'm on, and not just in the you know in business world, work world, but just in general life. You know, like both of my parents were really good listeners, and that's definitely a you know a skill that that I think I've probably got from them. I mean, just when when you really need to just sit down and try to understand where people are coming from. Ultimately, it makes you, you know, more, it makes you more persuasive to the extent that you're trying to get, you know, something accomplished and, and help you kind of put you on, on your path, you know, forward. So I think both of them were just, you know, fantastic listeners and, and, and that's what's helped me, I guess, kind of navigate my own world.
1: No, I love that. So, so Rick thinking through that and I touched on it, you know, I've just, I've watched how amazing dad you are and how important that is to to Gray and Charlotte. What would you want Gray and Charlotte to know about you?
0: Well, you know,
4: I think that when I look at like our parents and how involved they are and uh, they were and and what Roy touched on earlier about them always being there. And we didn't even touch on your mom at all, Michael, but, but we could do an entire podcast about Claire and her influence. And, and just, I, I, I think that like you were saying that we, we gotta, I I consider your parents like, like second set of parents to my own and, and all of them were different. And, and Claire, especially, you know. She would just, you know, tell you how it was and, and, you know, would set you straight when you were out there on the edge, you know, and, and, uh, and she was just no BS. And I, I feel like that, I feel like you could talk to her cause she was, uh, tolerant to a certain point, you know, and tell her things. But anyway, I wanted to make sure to not get off this without saying something about Claire and, and no, thank you for that. And you know, I I think that as far as as far as you know, being a dad and kind of doing our best in the current environment that we're in, I mean, it's it being as as hands on as our parents were, and having that environment that we grew up in, it's it's that's those are hard shoes to to fill. And, you know, I think that with our current, you know, circumstances and school and life and, and obligations and, you know, personal interests and hobbies and stuff, you know, I just try to, to do my best with what I have. And, and I do feel like that, that you know, we, we've all really thought about, you know, our upbringing and we're doing our best to try to replicate it and be involved in our kids' lives I would just say that that you know, if I were saying something to Charlotte and Gray about me is uh, you know, I'm just trying my best with what I have to work with and and you know trying to prioritize family and 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 you know deal with the circumstances that we live in today, you know, as best as i can so and unfortunately, I feel like that that we've been afforded you know some opportunities to have a little bit more time, at least these days. You know, I'm not constantly traveling for work like I was at AGM. You know, we had offices all over the US and, you know, we're importing from 26 different countries and I was gone a lot. But I I spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, you know, at the house these days and 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 I get to spend a lot of time with my family. And and I, I think that, you know, every once in a while you have to sit down and say, all right, this is kind of unique and, and appreciate it, you know? So I think that's, that's, that's one thing that I will want to continue to try to do is be as involved as I can in my kids' lives, you know, while they're still, you know, young and, and, and paying any attention, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you got their attention. So Roy and Ryan is, is, two guys that you know certainly climbed to the top of the mountain and and got to look out faster than most or or better than most if you're thinking about the you know it's it's who knows you anybody that hunts or fishes or enjoys the outdoors knows yeti coolers and and knows the story of of Roy and Ryan and so i would say you know what do you want the the employees along the way that that helped you build it and continue to help you build the brand and and grow still being large owners in in Yeti what do you want those 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 key people along the way to know about you guys good
0: question uh, you know and I don't know if I have a great answer for that but Ryan and I get a ton of credit for Yeti right as as founders but Obviously, you know, if you peel the onion back, you get the success of Yeti is on the shoulders of a lot of people. And right. those people in the early days that are no longer at Yeti, the Johnny Cabalas, the David Bullets, the Andy Hollins, I can, you know, I can name a lot of people and the people that are there today. We get a lot of credit and, and it's also it's internal, it's external and it's, you know, the success of Yeti is on the shoulders of a lot of people. Including you know those early employees to folks that are there today to private tech, the core tech to you know the management team that's in place. So you know it's it's been an amazing ride, and I, I don't know if I have a good answer to your question, but I will you know comment back to I think I think we're all the five of us are a pretty good reflection of our upbringing and our the way our parents raised us. And I think for my, my number one goal today is to try to duplicate this for our kids and yeah. raise good kids, right? And, and I, you know, if I have a North Star today, it's, it's being my parents and, um, raising good kids. And hopefully they're doing a podcast here in 30 years and they're reflecting on us, but <laughs> our, our, parents, our parents, our parents set the bar pretty high, right? They did. Uh, um, I
1: love that, Ryan. What would you have to add? You know, it's
2: it's been a crazy experience to to live through these Yeti years, and I was thinking a little bit about your question. But it's it a lot of times, like Roy mentioned, we get a lot of credit whether we should get it or not, from from people that have never met us. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's you know because we were associated with Yeti because we were founders. You know, I've had some business guys host Roy and I never met us before talking about what great Americans we are and that's (laughs) flattering, but it, it really, you know... It's really not just about Roy and I. It's about the the team that came together at the right time and our upbringing. And and it, it is funny how how the people that know you and the credit you get, whether you deserve it or not. I'm saying I'm not saying we don't deserve some credit, but it it's you get credit that maybe you don't deserve. You know? And so it it is a neat deal to be a part of. I'm just I feel great and in honor to be a part of it with some of the people that i got to work with and you know up to 2012 and you know it was a great experience and and growing up out in dripwood dripping springs having y'all just upstream of us and in on onion creek you know seven miles was a great way to grow up and i don't know how to duplicate it now being that close to austin and and but you know but be, being able to get out to some ranches with kids and and get outside of Austin now is is nice, and I, you know I really value that time with the family.
1: But well, you guys are amazing. I mean, I, I certainly think about my family and my career and where I am, and each one of you is is such a foundational pillar of that. I just I just want to thank you for the friendship and and the support and and the love along the way with all the bullshit going on in the world these days you know we just we need a lot more of the relationships like we have and the the love that we share for each other so to rick's point we could do a whole podcast on claire we could certainly dive into to ryan's land grab up in Kansas and everything he's got going on up there you know yeti capital and all the things you guys are looking at and 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 certainly renewables needs to continue to get a lot of of attention because it's, it's going to play a, a huge role in our future. So I'm going to have you guys back. I'm holding you to it and we'll, we'll get another podcast scheduled here before too long. Thank you guys for joining us. Absolutely. Thank thanks for having us. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the climb. If you enjoyed the episode please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.